Welcome to our podcast. I am Linda Messer. My husband Ron and I invite you to join us in our weekly broadcast of A New Voice of Freedom. Welcome to Season 4 of A New Voice of Freedom. The podcasts are taken from the four volumes in defense of Christianity, written by Ronald Keith Messer. This podcast is part of a series we call Poets' Corner. Today's feature is from Book 10, Part 32 of Milton's Paradise Lost. Podcast 16 is entitled The Fall, Part 4. In the prologue to Book 10, Milton writes, The proceedings of sin and death, God foretells the final victory of his Son over them and the renewing of all things, but for the present, commands his angels to make several alterations in heavens and elements. Adam, more and more perceiving his fallen condition, heavily bewails, rejects the condolement of Eve. As the drama unfolds, we have three major settings. One, we have the Father and Son and the host of heaven looking down on earth and hell from heaven. Two, we have Satan, sin, and death speaking to the spirits who fell from heaven with Lucifer. Three, we have Adam and Eve on the fallen earth. From heaven we learn that God is omniscient and that his plan is unfolding as it should. From hell we see the curse that was placed on Lucifer come to pass but we also see Satan, sin, and death plotting to destroy mankind. From earth, we see things from the view of a fallen Adam, who feels deep remorse for what he has caused by eating the forbidden fruit. His lamentations are pitiful as he thinks through the consequences. He is inconsolable. As the scene opens, Satan is contemplating the curse that God placed on him, wondering what it means. True is, me also he hath judged, or rather me not, but the brute serpent in whose shape man I deceived, that which to me belongs is enmity, which he hath put between me and mankind. I am to bruise his heel, his seed, when is not set, shall bruise my head, a world who would not purchase with a bruise or much more grievous pain. Ye have the account of my performance, what remains, ye gods, but up and enter now into full bliss. Satan dismisses the curse, mocking God, showing that Satan does not know the ways of God to man. He is in denial, boasting to the other devils as he promises them full bliss. He suffers his second great humiliation and defeat, the first being cast out of heaven. Expecting enormous applause, Satan receives a huge shock. So having said, A while he stood, expecting their universal shout and high applause to fill his ear, when contrary he hears on all sides, from innumerable tongues, a dismal universal hiss, the sound of public scorn. Satan stupidly thought the curse was on the serpent, whose body he usurped. He suddenly discovers that the curse is actually on him proving again that God is in charge, and his wisdom is greater than Satan's cunning. Many actually criticized Milton for making Satan a hero, but Milton is far ahead of his critics. 
Milton sticks to his theme to justify the ways of God to man. Milton is a scholar. He is analytical. He perfectly understands the Greek skill in sustained argument. Satan, though shown as cunning, does not come out as a hero. He is never in charge. God is always in charge and merely allows Satan to further his plan to give man agency. For agency to exist, man must be enticed both by Christ and by Satan. Without opposition, without choice, man could not have agency. Satan can do nothing more than God permits him to do. Milton captures this beautifully in the scene that follows. Only someone with Milton's genius could have pulled this off. The imagery is astonishing. For me personally, the following scene and the one at Hell's Gate where Satan first meets his daughter's sin and his son death after being cast out of heaven are some of the greatest images in literature. Scriptures accepting, for me, no one has captured the relationship among Satan, sin, and death better than Milton. And no one has better captured Satan's inferior position in relationship to God than is portrayed in the following extended scene. And as a reminder to Satan and his angels, the scene plays itself out annually to remind them of the curse God placed on Satan in the Garden of Eden. Before our very eyes, Satan is turning into a serpent. He wondered, but not long had leisure. Wondering at himself now more, his visage drawn, he felt to sharp and shape, his arms clung to his ribs, his legs intertwining each other, till supplanted down he fell, a monstrous serpent on his belly prone, reluctant, but in vain, a greater power now ruled him, punishment in the shape he'd sinned, according to his doom. Satan, as usual, expected thunderous applause, but instead he received a howling hiss from all the hosts of hell, who themselves were turned into serpents. Satan himself tries to speak, but can only hiss. Think back in the garden, when in the form of a serpent, Satan with oily tongue deceived the mother of mankind. Eve was deceived into thinking that the serpent was given such a glorious voice because the serpent had eaten of the forbidden fruit. This mocks that moment as Satan is humiliated for the first time among his peers. He would have spoke, but hiss for hiss returned with forked tongue to forked tongue. For now we're all transformed alike to serpents, all as accessories to his bold riot. Dreadful was the din of hissing through the hall, thick swarming now with complicated monsters head and tail, scorpion and asp, an amphivimo dire. Serastes horned, hydrus, and elops deer, and dipsus. Not so thick swarmed once the soil be dropped with blood of gorgon, but still greatest he the mist, now dragon grown, larger than whom the sun engendered in the Pythian veil on slime. Huge python, and his power no less he seemed above the rest, still to retain. There's a sharp contrast between Satan's first triumphant entry and the hissing we hear now. Even when they were just driven to hell, Satan rose out of the eternal fires of hell and declared victory, calling forth his generals to continue to the fight. To show their victory, Mammon built pandemonium patterned after paradise. 
Then Satan triumphantly returns, promising the devils that they can leave hell forever and dwell on earth, which is next to heaven in beauty, and live in eternal bliss. Now, for the first time, Satan was muted. All he could do was hiss. He could not spin the truth. He appeared naked before the other devils in the form of a speechless serpent. For the first time, they saw him for who he was, and he them. They were no longer gods, as Satan claimed. They were hideous monsters, hissing at each other. They all him followed, issuing forth to the open field, where all yet left of that revolted rout heaven fallen, in station stood, or just array, sublime with expectation, went to see in triumph, issuing forth their glorious chief. They saw... But other sight instead, a crown of ugly serpents, horror on them fell, and horrid sympathy. A device favored by poets is called an oxymoron, a figure of speech with two words in apparent contradiction. Shakespeare's familiar, parting is such sweet sorrow. Twain used the phrase dismal felicity in describing Tom Sawyer's self-pity. Notes that Milton used the phrase horrid sympathy to describe the serpents. It captures their tongue-tied confusion as they transform into serpents. Remember, they were spirits created in the image of God. They referred to themselves as gods. Milton goes against the common belief that Satan and his angels were monsters. Milton is a biblical literalist. The rebelling angels comprised a third part of the host of heaven. They were not separate. They were all spirit children of God, including Lucifer, who was a son of the morning. His name meant the Shining One. He was an angel of light, of apparently enormous power, that he could persuade a third part of heaven to follow him. Lucifer is only mentioned once. He became the devil after the fall. The only difference, aside from the fact that they are now sons of perdition, between the appearance of the devils and the other spirits is that the devils will never receive a physical body. They will always remain spirits. The monster imagery of the Bible is metaphorical, describing attributes of Satan's evil character. The horrid images of the devil are the devices of man's imagination. Even now he can appear as an angel of light. That is why being turned into a snake, even though temporarily, was such a horrible curse. It showed that God was still in power. For what they saw, they themselves now changing. Down their arms, down fell both spear and shield. Down they as fast, and the dire hiss renewed, and the dire form caught by contagion, like in punishment as in their crime. Thus was the applause they meant turned to exploding hiss, triumph to shame cast on themselves from their own mouths. There stood a grove hard by, sprung up with this new change, his will who reigns above to aggravate their penance, laden with fair fruit like that which grew in paradise, the bait of Eve used by the tempter. The imager gets even better and shows Satan's true counterfeit nature. The curse heaps greater humiliation on Satan's head, which corrupts all the other devils as well. A grove of trees, representing the tree of knowledge of good and evil, stands before the starving serpents, laden with luxurious fruit. But when they attempt to eat it, the fruit turns to ashes in their mouth. 
On that prospect strange their earnest eyes they fixed, imagining for one forbidden tree a multitude now risen to work them further woe or shame. Yet parched with scalling thirst and hunger fierce, though to delude them sent could not abstain, but on they rolled in heaps, and up the trees climbing sat thicker than the snaky locks that curled Megara. Greedily they plucked the fruit each fair to sight, like that which grew near the bituminous lake where Sodom flamed. This more delusive, not the touch, but taste deceived, they fondly thinking to allay their appetites with gust, instead of fruit chewed bitter ashes, which the offended taste with spattering noise rejected. One can see the clotted nest of vipers slithering up the trees and coiling around the fruit. However, rather than appeasing their appetites, their mouths were filled with cinders. Oft they assayed hunger and thirst constraining, drugged as oft with hatefulest direlish writhing their jaws with foot and cinders filled. The devils never blame Satan for their misery. They blame God, their sworn enemy. Because they willfully rejected the tender mercies of Christ, knowing he was the only begotten Son of God, they subjected themselves utterly to the power of the law of justice. Though they get their former shapes back, the devils must relive the scene annually as a reminder that an eternal curse is placed on them because of Satan's deceit. So oft they fell into the same illusion, not as man whom they triumphed once lapsed. Thus were they plagued and worn with famine, long and ceaseless hiss, till their lost shape permitted, they resumed. Yearly enjoined, some say to undergo this annual humbling certain numbered days to dash their pride and joy for man seduced. Sin and death arrived. If you remember, Satan empowered sin and death to act for him. Sin immediately takes charge. Meanwhile in paradise the hellish pair too soon arrived, sin there in power before, once actual, now in body, and to dwell habitual habitant. Behind her death, close following, pace for pace, not mounted yet on his pale horse, to whom sin thus began. Earlier, in Paradise Lost, the second in command was Beelzebub. Satan turned to his generals and held a council of war. The dynamics have now changed. Now his second in command is Sin, his daughter-slash-wife, who opened Hell's gate, and who, with her son Death, built a bridge between Hell and Earth. Sin speaks. Second of Satan sprung, all-conquering Death, what thinkest thou of our empire now, though earned with great travail difficult? Not better far than still at hell's dark threshold to have state watch unarmed, undreaded, and thyself half starved. Death, who has an insatiable appetite, answers his mother's sly sister strangely. Whom thus the sin-born monster answered soon. To me, who with eternal famine pine alike is hell, or paradise, or heaven, their best, where most with raven I may meet. Which here, though plenteous, all too little seems to stuff this maw, this vast, unhide-bound corpse. It takes a moment for the images to sink in. 
Death suffers from eternal famine. Hell, paradise, or heaven are all alike to death. He favors the place where he can stuff his maw. A maw is a gullet or throat of a greedy animal. He refers to his throat as a vast, unhidebound corpse. In other words, all death must go down his throat, yet he is never satisfied. Sin answers. To whom incestuous mother thus replied, Thou therefore on these herbs and fruits and flowers feed first, on each beast next, and fish and fowl, no homely morsel and whatever thing the scythe of time moves down, devour unspared. Till I in man residing through the race his thoughts, his looks, words, actions all infect, and season him thy last and sweetest prey. Sin's answer is chilling. She offers her son first the fruits of the field, then beasts, then fish and fowl, and everything else mowed down by the sickle of time. But she has just whetted death's appetite until she infects the thoughts, looks, words, and actions of all mankind, promising to season man as his last and sweetest prey. Now, with the approach of sin and death, Adam and his posterity really feel the effects of the fall. This said, they both betook them several ways, both to destroy, or unimmortal make, all kinds, and for destruction to mature sooner or later. Which the Almighty seen from his transcendent seat, the saints among, to those bright orders uttered thus his voice. Join us next week as we join Adam and Eve who are feeling the first effects of the fall for which inconsolable Adam blames himself. Thank you for listening. Watch for our next podcast.